This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Our book today tackles a very complex and difficult subject, but in a new approach. It's titled, New Hope for Schools, Findings of a Teacher Turned Detective. Our author, Dr. Susan Farr-Gabriel. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you, Jay, for having me. This is, a again, a complicated subject. Uh, on one side, you have individuals that feel throwing money at the problem will solve issues. On the other side, you feel like charter schools and other alternative solutions might improve the education standards. You're in Los Angeles. Why did you decide to write this book? What was the inspiration behind it? Well, I taught in Los Angeles City Schools for 20 years, and towards the end of my career, I walked into the teacher's workroom, and I saw a bulletin board, I saw a poster on a bulletin board that said, Warning Teacher Burnout. And there were, there was an electrical outlet with a whole bunch of extension cords, and I said, hmm, gee, that's interesting. I think I'll go back to school when I retire and sort it all out. So that was kind, and then I just started thinking about it, and then I then I finished and went back to school. Did you yourself uh, experience any of the burnout uh, scenarios that are mentioned quite frequently in the teaching and education system? Oh yes, yes. I I have to say that of my twenty years, the first five were probably just getting to know how to teach because it takes a while to really, really get to know how to teach. And after about five years, then my classrooms were humming and I was very satisfied. But then I started realizing that we had constant new programs being introduced constantly uh, all the time and that prevented me from really giving all my attention to my students. So I, uh, I, I, in my, and when I was back at UCLA, uh, I drew a chart and I called it, uh, I, I called it um, systemic decline. And my formula was nineteen plus one equals eighteen, mm-hmm. <laughs> which means. If your school quality is 19 and you add a reform effort, it's good, school quality is going to go down. Wow. And that's really quite well known in the literature. So clearly we needed a new theory about how schools work. Do you think that administrators and some of those in leadership, in order to justify their existence, keep adding these other tweaks and uh, formations in the school system, the education system, in order to justify why they should be there? Well, I really think that everybody wants schools to succeed. And what happens is everybody is trying to give their input. 
And so what happens is it ends up in the teacher uh, in the teacher's hands because the teacher is the one in front of the students. And so everybody's really kind of trying to do their best. And so I think that's really what happens. In your research and putting together the contents of New Hope for Schools, what is your proposed program exactly? How does it work? Well, I really took a journey in, in this book. Part one was my experience and my discovery that 18 plus 1 equals 17 and also my other discovery that we all of school decision makers are like they're on the tower of babel everybody's speaking a different language so i went back to school and i wrote a cup i got very excited about what became the round table and what became the thermostat guide and I got very excited about them, and I wrote two journal articles. And then 10 years later, <laughs> I decided this has to be a book for everybody. And so I translated my formula to, I, I tried to write it in a very reader-friendly way. And my formula turned out to be, well, first of all, the round table is such an exciting new practice. It is a 30-minute activity, and it's you introduce it in classrooms. We did, we've done it for 15 years in fourth-grade classrooms and other classrooms, too. We've done it for 14 years in my educational conferences, and it's an exciting new practice. It's 30 minutes long, five minutes of kind of uh, re- readings and review, and 25 minutes of participant comments, student comments, time distributed equally among all 30 students so that every child gets a chance to give his view on the topic. And since there are 40 weeks in a semester, every child gets a chance to be a roundtable leader during the year. And uh, because the, the, the activity is cued by a one-page script. Is it focused on one? Is it math-related? Is it conversation-related? Is it uh, topical in any way? Well, actually, it's really, it's kind of a curriculum delivery system. It's not a curriculum. So it, it's in fourth-grade classrooms, and social, the teacher might suggest a social studies topic, a science topic. It might be a piece of literature that the students have read. And uh, in my a- academic conference, that, as a matter of fact, uh, what our topic, we do it five days a week every morning before the before the day. And our topic on the first day is... What situations did you leave behind to come here? And what could happen here that would add value to your work back home? Because it's an international conference. And then on the second day, our topic is, what did you learn yesterday that was important for you? How was it important? So what it does is it suggests a topic, but it allows 30 viewpoints to be heard uh, equally. And so uh, we've come up with a sentence when we travel faster than the speed of sound, you break the sound barrier. Mm-hmm. When, we hear, when we hear 30 viewpoints in 30 minutes, we break the communication barrier. I think that's a great idea. And that would work, actually, transfer into business and other areas of community conversation. Right. And actually, we have one going monthly, a steady one in Los Angeles with the American Society for Training and Development and the International Society for Performance Improvement. We've been doing it monthly now. So it's it's really exciting. How are your results? How have they proven to be effective? 
Well, what uh, I think uh, student comments are wonderful. And, and some of the uh, academics and the practitioners and the professionals, their comments are wonderful too. Some of them say, oh, I didn't, uh, some of the fourth grade students' comments are, gee, I didn't realize how much I could learn. And uh, gee, when we first started the roundtable, students were, were kind of misbehaving, and now everybody's quiet and listening. And when I read this to my writing group, one of my, uh, one of the people in there is kind of uh, doubting Thomas, and he said, Sue, kids don't listen. And I said, they do listen to each other. <laughs> they just mm-hmm. don't like to listen to the teacher all the time. So it's really wonderful when you could hear 30 authentic viewpoints in 30 minutes, and it's it's just transformative. So, And you're taking the teacher into a, a position of being a, a facilitator in the conversation. Right. And as a matter of fact, the teacher can actually step aside and let the kids run the roundtables. And it's also valuable. The reason why my my background, my, my research was in systemic change and systemic renewal. In other words, the whole system. And uh, so it's for classrooms, faculty meetings, PTA meetings, district level meetings, government meetings, workplaces. It's just a little 30-minute activity that can can really enhance a community. Who's your target audience with this book? Well, my target audience uh, is all school decision makers. And so, uh, because every, that's what I've learned is that decisions are made in in Washington, D.C. that affect my Los Angeles classroom and they don't match. And so we have to all start speaking the same language. And so it's for all school decision all school decision makers. So that's prong one of my three-pronged solution. <laughs> Do you feel a passion for enhancing, obviously, education, but the local autonomy of the school districts and the educators? Well, that's what's so interesting. When I studied systemic change, there are levels of authority. The parent knows best how the, ch- the child's idiosyncrasies. So the parent has the authority for that. The teacher knows best what the child needs in the classroom and the subject matter. The principal knows best all the different functions of the school. The superintendent has a wider view, so we just have to make the decisions appropriate for each level. I heard somebody say uh, at at a leadership conference I was at, um, uh, the speaker said, when authority and responsibility are in two different seats, there is chaos. So we just need appropriate authority at each level. What are your thoughts? It makes about, sense. <laughs> it makes sense. What about, uh, what about your uh, concepts or your feelings toward, say, charter schools, uh, private schools, homeschooling? Are those effective? And are they working well because of something unique to those environments? You know, uh, I, I my experience in public education is that We've outgrown the old model, and we need a fresh new model. And uh, charter schools and private schools and homeschooling, these are just local people trying to do their best. But I am absolutely committed to public education, because if we don't have a system of public education, you know, we're, we're not going to really go forth as a society. So that everyone has his own expertise, and... My interest is public education. It's a great area, one that needs a lot of support, 
a lot of uh, rebuilding, in my opinion. There are some concerns by some who are immersed in the public school system, that teachers are not judged on the merit of their skills sometimes, but only on tenure. Is that anything that you've addressed in your book? You know, I have addressed uh, tenure a little bit. And again, my my vision is from the classroom and also from the ivory tower because right. my journey took me from the classroom all the way up to the ivory tower of systemic school change and then back again to the front lines with my three-pronged solution. And tenure at the school level is a wonderful thing because it builds a community of teachers. I agree. But however, it also has resulted in, if it's not designed correctly, it results in a host of teachers sitting in a district office collecting salaries because they've been pulled out of the classroom and they can't be fired. So I think I I really am not an expert in that. I've given my opinion in the book uh, that tenure is, uh, but I also point out that there's a great difference between teachers that are in the classroom and uh, teachers that have non-classroom positions. Teachers in the classroom really have to have all of our support. And teachers that have non-classroom positions, um, well, one of the discoveries I made is hyper-bureaucracy. In other words, uh, the California Code of Education says that there shall be eight administrative positions to 100 teaching positions. Mm. And in 1980... uh, there was a district official, uh, uh, actually a, um, a union official, who discovered that there were 25 positions to 100. And by that, those are like administrators, coordinators, counselors, uh, personnel. And some of those, those aren't even counted at, at, when we do our calculations. So we need to get... Uh, and so that, in, by his calculations, there are 17 salaries out of 100 that are illegitimate. And all of those teachers, all of the non-teaching teachers, of course, nobody becomes a teacher to become a bad teacher. True. And educators are missionaries. And so they keep trying to improve. That my, that's my view. And, uh, but if you're if there are the more administrators there are out of the classroom that are trying to tell me the teacher how to teach it prevents me from interacting with my students appropriately i am sure you have some horror stories also from being a teacher there's a rise in violence and disruption how have you addressed that in the past and what is your recommendation to the uh, teaching community today well uh when I, I stopped teaching, actually in 1988, because I had an opportunity to go, to go back to school, to USC and UCLA, and then I went to Saybrook Graduate School, where I studied systemic change. And I remember uh, one day I was driving home from UCLA, and I heard on the news that there were two shooting deaths in Los Angeles high schools. Wow. And uh, it's true, we have police on campus now. I mean, there has been a tremendous decline. And I, I look at Maslow's chart. Well, schools used to, uh, their goals were achievement. And now many, many schools today, they're in the survival mode. Right. So, uh, and so, uh, but we can't, 
transformation can't come from without. It has to come from within. So I'm offering a seed, <laughs> a seed that actually that I discovered in a wonderful, wonderful reading group, and I've just enhanced it to, to be uh, applied to schools. Proactive is much better than reactive, and your yes. book covers a lot of great material. Uh, it is an extensive read if you are going to sit down and study it, but there are reference points that a reader can go to and highlight those particular aspects of education and learn from them. I'm sure there were some challenges in completing this of 568 pages, but it is a great read for anyone in the education system or anyone who cares about education of their students and their community. The title, New Hope for Schools. Findings of a Teacher Turned Detective. Our author and guest, Dr. Susan Farr-Gabriel. Dr. Gabriel, share with my listeners how they can get a copy of this important book. Well, they can get them. They can find them Barnes & Noble, iUniverse, Amazon. They can find them on my website, www.gemslearning, G-E-M-S, Gabriel Educational Materials and Systems Learning, Net. Fabulous. And are you planning to continue your, your efforts, your, your passion, your crusade to reform schools by perhaps writing a follow-up book? I'm going to, absolutely. I'm not sure about the follow-up book. We'll see how that outflows, but I will absolutely continue with this work. And I just want to mention that the appendices in my book are user-ready guides for roundtables. So a reader, a teacher, a superintendent, a principal, all they have to do is start there while they're reading the book. The book is really, it's thorough, but it's very user-friendly. Dr. Gabriel, thank you for sharing your background story and your history into the writing of this particularly important book. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Jay. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Precarious Journey into Magic. And the author is Jenna Lindsay, and Jenna joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jenna. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us. Um, it, indeed, will be a magical discussion 
in the way you write, in the pictures that you form in our minds by reading your words. Uh, have you ever wanted to be part of a fairy tale? That's the question we'll ask everyone because uh, this is a very special fairy tale. It's, I'd have to say it's more real than a fairy tale. I mean, that's the way it all happened in your mind, right? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, you know, it's a unique mystery. It's magical. It deals with uh, some key central characters as well as secondary characters. And it deals with Ellswith, who will get to know a fairy. And uh, her very close friend, Emerson. But first of all, before we get into all those details and the plot and uh, what makes these characters so special... Tell us about yourself, Jenna, and uh, how this book came about. I love books. It's it's completely natural, uh, not at all unexpected that I would be a writer. Uh, I used to frequent a secondhand bookstore. Secondhand bookstores have a magic beyond libraries, and uh, the books have been treasured and rescued and to be read and shared again. And the secondhand bookstore uh, was knocked down for road improvements, and I was devastated. And I decided to uh, keep the, the bookstore alive. In this novel, A Precarious Journey into Magic, I wanted to share the experience of being in that bookstore and and how magical it was to me to be surrounded by books, and I wanted to share how I feel about books. And uh, I I feel that um, when when you're reading, you are in another time and place and it's the most unique way of traveling and uh, I I just wanted to share that with people because sometimes when I'm talking I probably don't seem to make sense because my mind is elsewhere I've just read a novel and and uh, instead of watching a television program or a movie I've I've been for myself in another world in another place and time and and uh, uh, I wanted to share that so where does your book take place where would the story take place well, the story takes place present-day Earth in the bookstore, which I, I recreated within uh, a beautiful old uh, Victorian-style house. And uh, it takes place across centuries in medieval Earth uh, and within the pages of several books. And I must clarify that Ellsworth, known as Ellsworth of Linaday, is not a fairy, but she is a, a woman who has fairy blood in her. So one of one of her ancestors was a fairy, and um, Emerson Patterson, her the great love of her life, and um, uh, she is his great love. Um, he too, he doesn't know it, but he also had an ancestor who uh, was has was a fairy, and so they are called fairies fine. And uh, if you're fine, it means that um, one of your ancestors was romanced by a fairy, which I thought was very cool. <laughs> if you're a fairy fair, then you're of course the fairy that with the wings and you know flitting around, having apparently having a very good time. <laughs> 
I love this line in the prologue that sets up this uh, magical tale. Uh, again, you know, we're in the bookstore, and Emerson's there, and, and uh, he begins talking with Ellsworth. And you say this uh, about Ellsworth. She lived between the pages of an old book. <laughs> that, that just jumped out at me. Uh, just, you know, th- th- that's what's so amazing about books like you were just talking about because they take us so many places. Yes, I, uh, hence the question, have you ever wished you could be part of a fairy tale? And I think very many of us think that going traveling into the past, we'd be so much happier. Um, Being in a fairy tale, wouldn't that be romantic? And we uh, forget that it's also very frightening. There, There aren't just wonderful fairies flitting around and all good happiness, you know, waiting for you. There's there's a lot of evil and darkness. And I had to deal with three villains in this story, and they would crop up at unexpected moments. And, and I would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, um, who are you and, and where did you come from? I was expecting this one over here. And uh, it was... <laughs> really caught me off guard sometimes. I I just would write, and unlike my previous uh, books where I would write whenever I pass my study and I think, oh, you know, I think I hear this particular, or see this particular scene, uh, I would write every day with uh, Ellsworth and Emerson and be with them and the secondary characters. There's five of them, and they're all so wonderful and unique. Um, and it was such a personal story. It is such a personal story. It's my favorite book that I've written so far. And but it was it got really tiring. It also got very scary sometimes because I'd I'd be in my study and I'd I'd complete a scene with Ellsworth and Emerson or Freddie Berrywood, and then suddenly, oh my gosh, the next scene is with Nickabox, who's a minor sorcerer compared to the major uh, sorcerer, Miria, who is so pernicious. I, I just, I really didn't like being with her. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to be careful who you hang out with. You do, you do. The, the nice thing is that, you know, I, I know how it ends, but I'm not telling. <laughs> yes, you do know how it ends. Well, tell us about Avery Kind. Well, Avery Kind is the uh, proprietor of the bookstore where most of the novel takes place within a book in the bookstore within the bookstore itself. And he's really essential throughout the entire story because he understands the, the importance of books and he believes in the magic of books and he believes in love and magic and he he's uh he's a wistful man he's he's uh and and his bookstore is uh, a sanctuary ultimately for the two central characters Ellsworth and Emerson um and it's Avery's um uh, he's steadfast and it's his steadfast nature and his compassion and his 
um, you know, protection of the books and the bookstore are really essential to for the story to go forward and for the two central characters, Ellsworth and Emerson, to uh, um, go on their journey. And, and also Avery and his friend Freddie Berrywood, they're very important to uh, solving, helping to solve the mystery. And I, I didn't really start out to write a mystery. Uh, I found it really challenging, but ultimately you, this is a fantasy that is a mystery. Uh, it's also a love story, but I found that the mystery was very compelling and and really challenging, and I'm, I'm really grateful that I had very smart characters like Avery and Freddie and, and Albert and Mrs. Foyle and Mr. Preen, uh, but especially Avery and Freddie, they, they were so smart. I thought, I thought, oh my gosh, this is how, I've, what if I've interpreted the poem wrong? And they'd, they'd come up with suggestions and <laughs> I'd say, oh, oh, of course that's what it means. Oh, well, I'm glad one of us knows. Characters do seem to talk, don't they? They just kind of start talking and you start writing. I do. I do. And, and I'll, I'll say to my husband, I'll say, quick, write this down. <laughs> <laughs> I've already shut my computer off. Quick, quick, write, take these notes so I don't, so I don't lose it. And then he'll grab right. his notepad and jot down some notes and then I'll work with them the next day. Um, there were a lot of riddles. Several, there are several riddles in the story, and they weren't difficult to write. But then I'd look at them and I'd think, "Well, how am I going to solve this riddle? What does it mean?" And it would take me a, a, a little while to figure it out. I found it ultimately really satisfying and, and really fascinating. What would you say? How would you describe the theme of your book? Well. The theme of my book. I think that, um, as I said earlier, that the 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 story touches on a subject that people rarely discuss, and that's the desire for a happy ever after. And we we don't like to talk about it, and we don't like to acknowledge it as more than just a, a fantasy. We just tend to be dismissive of fantasy, and we forget how important it is. And um, we we forget that within fantasy there's there's darkness, and we don't want to acknowledge the possibility of loss or defeat. But even more than that, I think that being dismissive of fantasy as we become more dependent on technology, we forget how important stories are, whether they're fantasies, fictions, non-fictions, whatever it is, whatever format you're reading, uh, the, the, the books themselves, the stories, um, they provide possibilities that science and technology can't provide. And, and in any format, the books and the stories that they tell, are, they're part of our future. We have to keep them, keep them safe. That's, that's an important thing that Avery Kind provides. He provides a sanctuary, not just for Ellsworth and Emerson, but for these wonderful books in his secondhand bookstore. And, and um, I, you know, to, to, I fortunately was not there. I just happened to, my husband drove me by one day and I said, oh, let's stop at my 
favorite secondhand bookstore, and I'm looking over my shoulder now as we continue to drive by, and it's gone, and the roadway's wider, and I, I just thought that's terribly sad, and I that that you know yeah we need roadways but we we need the bookstores we need the bookstores and the libraries and uh, we need to to keep our books somewhere in our home and and uh, you know available on whatever electronic format is makes us feel good but uh, we need those stories there's something about walking into a room and seeing a uh, bookshelf or shelves filled with books. It kind of draws us, out, draws us to those books, and we start looking at titles, and we pull out one or two, and we leaf through them. It's just, I don't know, that, I think that's just part of the human, the human condition. I think you're right. I know that in every room in my house, there's a small group of books, a setting for books. And then uh, in one room, I have what I call my library. And it's a six shelf uh, just for my personal collection of books. Most of them are secondhand, favorite books, books that inspired me. Um, and uh, it just makes me feel good every time I walk into that room. And as you said, I see the titles and I can run my fingers along the titles, pull out a favorite book, read a few lines, and I get caught up in the story right away. Right. Well, you've mentioned about this bookstore being a necessary sanctuary for the two main characters. But at, at the same time, it's a setting for this battle between good and evil. Yes, it does become very much so part of that setting. Um, kind of a launch point at a couple of places later on in the story where uh, Ellsworth is in possession of a book called uh, All Fairies Fine. And from that book, she and Emerson can go essentially back in time to a magical place called Lina Day and uh, confront uh, the sorcerer, and um, it it gets really tense. I found it hard to put the book down when I was reading it. It was very odd for me to be reading one of I thought I wrote this. I know what's going to happen. I know how it's going to end. Why am I? Why am I? You know, still turning the page and reading. And um, uh, but some of the wonderful magic that takes place occurs actually in the bookstore late at night, and uh, it's kind of spooky and it's really beautiful at the same time. So uh, was uh, really, I really enjoyed it. It was a wonderful experience for me to write this book. We've enjoyed talking to you, Jenna. I know everyone listening uh, can, is caught up in just this magic, as Jenna has put it so well. The magic of books and her, new, her book titled A Precarious Journey into Magic. So there is that edge to it, obviously, this battle between good and evil. Jenna, tell yeah. us the best way to get your book. Well, you can get it from iUniverse, of course. You can go to my website, authorjennalindsay.com, and there is a link provided on the site that will take you directly to uh, ordering my book from Amazon. You can order it from uh, Amazon.com or .ca. Um, Barnes & Noble in the States and Chapters Indigo in Canada, you can just go in and say, I'd like to order Jenna Lindsay's 
fourth novel, A Precarious Journey into Magic, and they'll bring it up on screen and place the order for you. And um, uh, you can also order it electronically. Thank you so much, Jenna, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The title of the book is Errand Runner. Our author, Stephen Berg, joins me from the Northwest in Portland, Oregon. Welcome, sir, to the program. Well, thank you, Jay. I really appreciate you having me on. Honored to have you on the program. This is your first fictional work, Errand Runner. Tell us a little of the background story. I know part of it takes place in Munich in 1972. What is the significance of that, and why did you include it in your storyline? Okay, well, the, the protagonist is a young man named Steph Ronstad uh, from a logging in Milltown in the Pacific Northwest. Port Angeles, Washington, and he is uh, about to enlist in the Marine Corps, and during his health examination, he is confronted by two officers from the CIA who have a little file on his past, which includes a little bit of a criminal uh, activity, and he, they end up brokering a deal with Steph in which he avoids military duty as well as potential prison time in turn for running errands for the CIA abroad. And part of it does take place uh, at the Olympics in Munich, and I happen to have been at the Olympics during those tragic events. And they really made an impact on me, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to include that in the story of Aaron Runner. You've uh, published, I'm not published, but you have uh, perfected 322 pages, at least I'll say perfected. What of the content was inspired by other activities in your life or other events? Well, what I did is I wove uh, a lot of actual historical events that took place during times while I was traveling abroad. Um, So the story actually begins in, in England, well, begins in Port Angeles, Washington, then moves to England when he starts his errands for the CIA. And it tra- he travels across uh, Europe and ends up in uh, Munich and then moves on from there to the Greek islands and also uh, to Istanbul, Turkey, where another 
uh, part of the story takes place. And I, since I had travels to those areas, I liked including them. What is the time frame? You have 1972. What is uh, the length of your story? Does it go through present tense, or is it just confined to the 70s? It just confined to the 70s. As you begin to write this and reflect on some of your journeys and some of the observations you had made, did you begin by doing an outline and fleshing out the characters, or was it simply inspiration that got you started? <laughs> Actually, I, I guess I, I would be called what you refer to as a seat-of-your-pants writer. Mm-hmm. So I just started writing this story. I did not have an outline, and uh, I just kind of followed uh, the, the timeline of the frames when I was uh, traveling abroad and, and used those timelines for the story. Would you describe your book as uh, your story, your inspiration as character-driven, or is there a lot of action also included? Oh, there's a lot of both. Uh, some of my favorite authors uh, have, have really done a great job of character development, and so I uh, utilized a lot of, of skills that I learned from reading other uh, novelists. And uh, then uh, I just took that into the story, and there's plenty of action. So if you like suspense and danger, then this is a book for you. Who's your audience besides just those that like suspense and, and action? Uh, is it a broad, <laughs> Will this be something that even a young reader, uh, say a young adult, would enjoy reading? Well, I think so, because the protagonist is a young adult. He's 21 years old during most of the action that, that occurs, and so I think that appeals to uh, some of the younger audience as well as those who may have been uh, aware of what happened in, in Olympics in Munich, uh, as well as a lot of the uh, political activity that was going on uh, in, in the Middle East uh, during that same time frame. Did you have a specific uh, target, idea, concept, uh, message that you wanted to get across to the reader? What I really wanted to do was to take people back uh, in time and, and kind of go through a lot of... Uh, uh, history uh, that happened during the early years of the 1970s, and it was a real time of turmoil across the world. And so I wanted to get people back, and those who really didn't uh, follow things back then, I thought it would be an opportunity for them to kind of relive it and uh, just inspire people and, and create a, a real thought-provoking story. How long ago did you decide or did you feel that it was time to pursue the field of being an author. That's an interesting story, too. Uh, I had a very lengthy career uh, building homes, and, and most of the homes that I specialized in were rather unique. So when I retired from that, I, I really was missing something, and that was the creative process. So I thought about different things that I could do, and I really wanted to challenge myself. And since I had never written a novel before, I thought that that would be a great place to start into my challenge. How long did it take to complete Errand Runner? Well, the original manuscript uh, took me 12 months, uh, interrupted by life and fun, but uh, I just stayed sequestered in what was we, all my neighbors referred to as the man cave, and, and uh, I spent a lot of time in there, so my wife Jenny was kind of uh, the writer's widow for 12 months. Mm. You liked the process well enough that you have also embarked on a second novel. Yes, uh, I have, and I am uh, into about 10 chapters of, of the sequel, which is 
called Watchdog, and I think it's going to be a very exciting book. It'll feature some of the same characters uh, in main characters in Aaron Runner, uh, but there will be plenty of new action. And you've remodeled your man cave. No, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> uh, never really had to remodel the man cave. It was uh, perfect. It was one of those things where I, I talked my wife into building it because uh, she didn't like me watching football games and having my friends over and, and spilling peanut shells on the floor. So we built the man cave. Beautiful. If you were to introduce this book to one of my listeners in a couple of sentences, how would you do so? I think that I would just say that the story of Aaron Runner. Uh, is an exciting book. Uh, it doesn't lack action. There's not very much lull time, but there is a little bit of romance. So I, I know that a lot of the gals who like to have uh, readers, uh, they don't want to just be stuck with action. They want a little romance. So we included some of that, and that was actually one of the things that the editors at iUniverse really wanted me to kind of uh, emphasize a little bit. You've mentioned a couple things. One was other authors that may have influenced you. Who would those be? Well, when we talked about character development, I really like uh, Larry McMurtry's way of developing characters. And when I uh, read the Lonesome Dove series, I've got to say that the people that when it's, a lot of times when they make a, a movie out of a series of books, you're disappointed in the movies. But the character development was so detailed and so fantastic. It was just the way that I and many other viewers, viewers of the movie just had imagined those characters. And then. In the genre, I really like, uh, I've always really enjoyed uh, Clive Cussler, Nelson DeMille, Tom Clancy, and some, some of those authors really just kept me going. And if, if the pantry was really full in their bookstore, then I read them. Wow. A key ingredient to being an author, then, is reading good books or books that will inspire you. Oh, there's no doubt about that. I, I don't think that... Uh, any author would be very successful if they haven't uh, read and learned and taken the things that they like from different authors and incorporate that into their own style. That doesn't mean to say that you should try to emulate anybody's writing style, but I think that what it really means is, is that if you can take elements from writing styles that you really like and have read a lot of those authors' books, that can be a big help. You've mentioned that much of the, or many of the, Locations in your book are locations that you have visited, and some of the storyline does emulate real or true life in your instance. You mentioned the CIA. Is there some connection there, or is that fictitious all the way? <laughs> well, it's so funny because so many people who, who know me, and after they have read the book, they they just feel certain that I actually did work for the CIA. But And I think that's in part because it's easier for people to believe uh, that uh, it actually occurred as opposed to me just having a, a great imagination. And I can assure you that it's the part about the great imagination. I have never worked for the CIA. Now you're off the hook. All right. Uh, the readers, when they read your book, what is the element that you believe they will enjoy the most? I think it's the fact that it's when you're really focusing on a protagonist and what happens and what transpires in their life, I think that you, you, the readers will feel what it was like to be Steph Bronstad and experience some of the things that he actually experienced. Many of my authors have a dream beyond just the written pages. They hope someday their action thriller may be turned into a movie. Is there a scene 
that's going to stand out to the reader and possibly a potential director? I think there's always some potential, and of course, I think like any other author, uh, you know, I, I have dreams about that coming to fruition. But there are a number of scenes that I think that will appeal to a lot of moviegoers as well as avid book readers, and uh, those are, are some of the action scenes and some of even the romance. A romance? How intense is your romance in the book? <laughs> Boy, Jay, you're really putting me on the spot now. First, the question is about the CIA and about the romance now. Mm -hmm. Oh, there, through Steps Travels, uh, he has to leave uh, his longtime high school sweetheart and beyond. Uh, and so there is the romance of going back to the days of even high school with him, mm -hmm. uh, and then things that move on from there. Anything that would uh, have naughty bits in it? I think there is just a little bit of the naughtiness in there, but it's it's not totally filled with it. Good, 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 good to hear. I, I'm just wanting to know whether I should uh, read this or put it aside. Uh, <laughs> as, how would you introduce this book to our listeners in a couple of paragraphs? I would say that the, the story of Aaron Runner uh, is an emotional uh, and action-packed uh, book that, that has a little bit of everything for everyone, and I think that it's uh, something that if you really enjoy suspense, then this is a story for you. If you really enjoy uh, some of the emotional times that, that people go through as they're growing up, then you will enjoy this, and uh, it's just a fun, exciting suspense book. An international suspense thriller. Were there complications or difficulties or challenges in getting this into print? Oh, there were definitely some challenges, especially when you're dealing uh, with some characters who uh, actually had uh, parts in historical events and kind of putting some twists on the stories and actions that actually happened uh, without offending anybody, but uh, still making for an intriguing and thought-provoking story. Great job on your first novel, 322 pages. Aaron Runner is the name of it. Our author, Stephen Berg. Steve, where do we get copies of your book? Well, right now, of course, on uh, the iUniverse website, it is available, uh, as well as Barnes & Noble and Amazon. And, and there will be some other outlets coming soon, too, but those will keep everybody apprised. Of. Have you completed a website yet, or are you planning to develop one? Uh, I'm actually working with our universe right now on developing that website. So they can do a search under your name, Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N, last name Berg, B-E-R-G, and find out what in the world you're up to, and uh, also get a preview of your next release when it's available. Yes, and uh, I do have a Facebook page specifically for Aaron Runner, and it is just Aaron Runner Novel, so you can... Look at it on my Facebook page and hopefully even click a like on it. Fabulous. Stephen, great visiting with you and finding out the background story of Errand Runner. Uh, suspense novel, 322 pages. Advise you to go out and get a copy of it or find out a little bit more online on Stephen's page. Thank you, Steve, for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me, Jay. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker.
iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.